Hello, Revelers, and welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Revel, and today I have with me another Colorado superstar author, Karen Ovenen. I hope that you enjoy this. She is an award-winning author and just a all-around interesting and fantastic person. I'm going to wait till the end to do all other information and commercials and whatnot. So please stick around to the end. And for now, just sit back, relax, and get ready to dig deep into life with Karen Alvinen. So hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. First of all, I need to know how to say your name. <laughs> uh, it's pronounced Ovenin. Okay, good. I've been saying it right. Ovenin. Yay, you're the only one. Um, people usually want to say um, Avignon or whatever. They want to make it French. It's Finnish. It's Finnish. Well, obviously you look more Finnish than French, but I would not look at that name and think Finnish. So it does look Avignon. Oh, um, you know, it's a really um, common kind of Finnish pattern. Avignon, Revenin, Toivonen, Kenanen. Those are all Lostiken. Those are all kind of Finnish names. So Wow. Unless it has, you know, a ton of vowels in a row. It doesn't look Finnish to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. The (laughs) UU. Well, it probably did at one point Uh for my ancestors who were farmers uh came to uh, actually they ended up in north dakota i was just out there so i had no idea that's where they landed so yeah well, that's very common for the the gandic type people to end up there i'm actually um thinking about doing a podcast myself on this i have a great aunt who disappeared into the north dakota hospital for the insane when she was 21 and i heard when i was growing up that she was just um uh, she had lived in a home. So I thought she was born with a mental disability. And that is actually probably not true. Something manifests at the age of 21. I've heard a bunch of different stories. And of course, because I'm a woman who grew up in this culture, I'm worried that what manifested is that she said no to her father. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, who was a very strict Finn in the Apostolic Lutheran Church. So oh. anyway, I've been trying to find the story and it's really fascinating because my family's not very close and I've made contact with some some relatives that I didn't know existed and they at first talked to me and then the doors just slammed shut so it's it's a very interesting journey I have no idea what this is going to turn out to be and probably I'm not going to be able to find out really what happened to her but I'm really interested in the stories and how the stories have affected my lineage. I'm trying to get out of the sun here. There we go. <laughs> oh, I can see you just fine. Okay. But for your sake, if you're not wearing sunscreen, yeah, get out of the sun. No, no, no. I mean, no, it's fine with me. I just, I look very holy right now because I wore a white t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're glowing. <laughs> so about, she was your aunt. Is that what you said? My great aunt. So my grandmother's sister, okay. and they grew up on a farm in North Dakota and so here's the interesting thing is that I didn't even know when I was growing up, I heard that the, I thought the farm was in Wisconsin. This is my family. They're just so kind of like scattered and there's so many silences there. So I, my mother's has passed, but I subsequently have found out, no, the farm was in North Dakota, right on the border of South Dakota. So my sister and I just went up there for a research trip. We went to see the farm site and the graveyards where my great aunt is buried 
you know, the shocking thing to me is I had heard she lived in a home and then I found out that she lived to be 87 years old. Oh, wow. Um, so she was in the institution for 35 plus years and um, they lobotomized her and they she got shock therapy and she's probably sterilized. And God knows what else happened to her because she lived there during the institution's quote unquote dark years mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing, you know, hydrotherapy. It, I mean, as if shock therapy and lobotomy aren't enough, they were doing insulin therapy. They, and so we went to the museum of the hospital and. You know, they're, they've destroyed, some superintendent made the choice to destroy all the records about 12 years ago. Oh, wow. And I'm not the only person who goes there looking for evidence of relatives and what happened to them. So they have a whole museum, or you know, which is actually basically a sunroom, a solarium, filled with artifacts, straight jackets. Straight jackets in colors, if you can imagine, purple and red. Like, I'll take the purple straight jacket today, wow. please. Like, how weird is that? I'll take mine with some bling. I mean, yeah. right, exactly. Um, I'll have like rhinestones on my straight yeah. jacket. So as you know, the theme of the podcast is sort of that oneness, connectedness, uh, serendipity of how things happen and everything. And I'm having more of it right now. So I have interviewed this year. Yeah, both this year, Kate Clifford Larson, who is has a biography coming out about Rose Kennedy. And of course, ah, yeah, yes, yes, of course. And then I also had a, another author who does historical fiction, and she wrote about one of the only leper colonies institutions that we had in the states, and you know what happened there, and all in this year. And so I went and did a family visit back in May after I got vaccinated and everything. Traveled like everybody else did, and um, right. found out that. I always heard that my grandfather had a heart attack and died when, you know, he was fairly young and I hadn't even been born yet. And I don't, I don't remember how old my mom was, but anyway, I found out the full story this time in that he was working for a union and uh, we're from Philadelphia and there was an anti-union like busting up sort of a campaign going on. And it was so traumatic to him and a few other people because he was at the, he was pretty high up in the union and it was so traumatic to him and a few others that he had a nervous breakdown. You know, they were threatening his his family and all that. So they put him into an institution and he actually was having shock therapy. And that's when he had the heart attack. Where was this? What state was it? Uh, Pennsylvania. So Philadelphia. That that is interesting. I, you know, I just think I don't know what it is. I, what got me started on this was this idea of inherited family trauma. Oh my gosh, that, that's you know, so big right now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this idea, and and um, at various times in my life, you know, my my grandparents, my so my mother's parents, they were um, put into a nursing home, put into a nursing home, like you know, because nobody could take care of them, and it wasn't a pleasant place, and they and died within about like my grandfather died within the year, my grandmother died within a year and a half. My own mother went into a nursing facility because she had a giant brain aneurysm and uh, she was in, uh, uh, originally in hospice and then she apparently decided she wasn't done. Mm. And so she spent two years in hospice in the grossest nursing facility. And I mean, I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't have the money to kind of put her in a nicer place and she was on Medicaid and it was disgusting. And um it was, and so I had this fear, like, oh my God, am I next? I mean, I never had children who's going to take care of me. 
and about this time that my mother had this big uh, trauma about having to go into this facility and she's dying for a really long time, two years is a long time, I started researching my great aunt. Um, and I was like, what, something is there, something is there, something is there. So, so it is interesting. Um, and I don't quite know what the story is yet. I don't, um, it may, you know, may, I will write about it. It may be a novel because I don't think I'm ever going to get the facts and I don't know how I can possibly in a nonfiction book come to something satisfying yet for uh, my readers. Um, so we'll see what happens, but it's definitely percolating back there. And I think, so the podcast is Finding Nina and we'll I need an arc first before I can start producing it because I need to know how it's going to end. I'm not going to put podcasts out there if I don't know. Right, right, right. Like yeah. where we're going. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So speaking of the, how trauma gets passed down through the generations, it's so weird that that's just coming up. Ran into a friend who started telling me about his dad. Now his dad passed away 16 years ago. So I'm not sure why it's percolating in him now, but he started telling me about his dad, that his dad was part of the Nazi resistance in the Netherlands. And that he, uh, my friend Pete, he feels like his dad's trauma is now coming out in him, that he's realized he's an empath and all this stuff, and that he's been carrying this for such a long time. His dad actually told him that um, if you knew the things that I have done, you wouldn't want me in your life. Well, that he, I mean, amazing that he could say that at least, I mean, you know, in general, yeah. I mean, very often men are so shut down about that kind of stuff. It's so uncompartmentalized. Right. Well, he went, I mean, he wouldn't talk about it. He just said that. And that's yeah. as far as I'm going. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, of course my, you know, that, this is why I suspect the worst um, uh, with my great aunt is because I know the history of how women have been treated in my family and how we've been silenced. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, that just didn't start with me or my mother. You know, it was passed down. And, um, you know, the other thing that's really interesting that that has been passed along in my family is Parkinson's. And the way it manifests is uh, people's inability to speak. Mm. So... <laughs> So, um, so it's, yes, it's fascinating. And I think, I don't, yeah. Why is this all coming up right now? Are we, um, are we burning our karma as a planet? Hopefully as a people, I, I don't know. So we can enter the new world, please, please. Could that be happening? I think, I don't know. I mean, maybe that, maybe the people just because of the internet, they have more access to be able to research things, you know, and they maybe don't like what they uncover which is like, duh, of course, you're going to find horrible things in the past. That's what history is. But so I usually start the podcast with how we know each other and we don't, but there is a thing. There's a little serendipitous thing. So I was working at the bookstore in Conifer called Page Turner Bookstore. And my boss, Lisa, who you must know because you came to our store, she kept having author events when I was out of town. And you were one of those that I missed. And she had another book. And I can't remember if it was right before yours or right after yours that was about generational trauma. And so I missed both of those. And then now they're both coming up in my life like two years later or three years later, even. It never really goes away, does it? I mean, it kind of keeps coming back until you pay attention to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and that's, that comes up a lot on the podcast. Like 
how often things were like trying to get your attention and finally you listen later, you know? So anyway, so we almost met back in uh, 2018. It was, and that's when, right. when Rough Beauty came out, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came to a little tiny conifer and that's awesome. And I thoroughly enjoy your book. I just never, I just got around to it this year. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, anytime you get around to it, I'm pretty happy. Right. So still get letters from people. Oh my God, I just found your book. I loved it so much. So that's lovely. It's lovely. The life of a book. Right. And that's how it should be. This should live forever. And the funny thing about how it happened, it was, you know, obviously I was, I was selling your book. It was there and I would tell people about it and everyone else who had read it and participated told me how good it was, but it was just one of those, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. You know, I really believe that a book comes to you at the right time. And so I don't try to force it. So I had another podcast interview with someone who recommended when women were birds. Love that book. Not any of her other books, but just specifically that one. And it's so funny. I've only done like 39 interviews, but I can't remember who recommended it. I have to go back and listen and see what they said about it. And so I had just gotten about a third of the way through, maybe a quarter of the way through when I got your book and uh, I got an audio. And so, you know, because we drive a lot in Colorado so I'm listening to yours and I'm reading that. And all of a sudden you start talking about her and I'm like, oh my God. Terry Tempest Williams. Um, I'm such a, she's such a huge influence in my life. And I think the person who gave me permission to um, be the writer I am, which is a writer who really does uh, revel in beauty, but also in um, kind of an emotional landscape. And I've, when I was in graduate school, I was told that Terry Tempest Williams was sentimental. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, and but this is what the Academy kind of, do, you know, like does uh, to women. It denies them their nature. And I don't and they meant sentimental in the, you know, kind of worst possible way yeah. as in the sentiment, sentimental movement of the 19th century which was a revolution in, in its own right. But anyway, I, um, yeah, so she was hugely influential to me and it was really important for me to meet her um, after my house burned down in the book that my, starts with a house fire where my, uh, I lost everything. <laughs> just as I was about to turn 40, I just like kind of clawed my way to the present moment, which was a PhD and finally, finally being able to live on my own. And, uh, and then I lost it all and had to start over again. And it was um, without my dog, who was a big character in the book, I probably, I don't think I would, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. Um, I kind of, in in some ways I did it for him because he was such a pain in the butt Mm. dog. He was so high maintenance, this white husky I had named Elvis, that I, um, you know, I thought, oh my God, who would take care of him? Mm. Who would, who could, who could put up with him? Um, He was really, you know, just a very... um, I have another dog now. Elvis was a human in a fur coat. My dog I have now is a, is a dear, dear, sweet being, but he's a dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I think Elvis kind of saved me in some ways. I thought, you know, I, I have to rebuild my life because I've got this dog to take care of. So, Well, that's one of the things I loved about your book because of the dog factor and how you wrote about him. And we lost our Husky mix at the end of 2017 and we'll never be the same. And I, there must be something about Huskies because he was definitely a human in the dog body for sure too. So I understand that. 
Well, they're super smart, right? That's the first thing. But they, and they, I mean, they definitely have their own agenda about what's going to happen. And as you know, they're really independent and like to do what they like to do. And, and tell you like, you know, no, we're doing this. <laughs> before Elvis had an autoimmune disease that showed up when he was about seven. But before that, his, it was, he was difficult. I mean, it was really hard to, um, figure out what our relationship was in the book. I talk about this idea of like, I had to, I trained him by, you know, putting a leash around my waist and clipping it to him in the morning and then walking around with him so that he would know that where I went, he was supposed to go. And, uh, which is a good thing for a hussy because of course, you know, they like to run away mm -hmm. uh, and they get so excited about what they're doing. They forget to come home or they get lost yep. uh, and they can travel really far. And so I didn't want that to happen. And, Anyway, so I, I say in the book, I talk about this idea that it become, became this kind of umbilical cord between us. And I thought I was saving him, but in the end, he saved me because I, you know, grew up in a pretty uh, abusive home. And uh, and in fact, like, one of those homes where the what's, the practices that, that were normed, once I kind of left home, I, I turned around and looked back and I thought, oh, <laughs> Not everybody has a home like this. Like it was so normed for me that I thought everybody just grew up like this yeah. with parents who yelled at them and hit them and, you know, whatever, treated them like um, servants. And um, my mother was completely checked out, bless her soul. She was uh, the child of two alcoholics. So I, so I didn't really know. Love was very conditional in my house. And, and I, when I got Elvis, it was the first time in my life that I really understood what love was and, and unconditional love. And, uh, and uh, it, the way it used to manifest for me is that I would just worry constantly about him. That's not necessarily a positive aspect of love, but I just worried constantly that he would leave me, um, that he would get, you know, hurt or killed or whatever. And uh, but in the end, in our relationship, it really was this kind of beautiful give and take. And I don't, you know, I don't, I'm gushing about an animal, but he really was the first experience of love that I had in my life. And um, it really opened the doors for other things in my life. It, you know, really was a, a I can't believe I'm going to say this. It was a very healing experience. Um, uh, but it was really, a, it was a miracle, really, honestly. That's entirely how I look at it. And I mean, if you if one grows up with pets as I did. And I've, I mean, I'm 52 now. I've probably had about 15 dogs and, you know, three cats and gerbils and all the other stuff you have when you're little. And, and you realize how often that these animals die and it's so painful. And you're like, why, 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 why is it like this? You know, you, you have to sort of make peace with it. And I can't live without dogs. We don't have cats anymore, but I kind of realized that, you know, you're, you're lucky to have that animal in your life. And you're also lucky to learn and to relearn because humans are stupid and we need to keep relearning the same lessons about love and life and death and everything. And we get to learn it from the best possible role models. Yeah. You know, the dog is always the, is the only being in your life that is always happy to see you. Right. Always happy. Right. And that is such a huge gift. And, I'll, and the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I know that it's um, difficult to lose animals. Like just the idea of thinking about my dog who is not right now healthy and, you know, not even middle-aged yet going, you know, gives me pause. And we have a 20-year-old cat, almost 20-year-old cat who, you know, she's doing great, but she's 20. Right. 
anyway, um, but the thing about Elvis is that he really taught me like what it like how to be present for death. I knew that he was going to die a year and a half before he died. Um, he had cancer. And so I just started this practice of being happy that he was there that one day with me. And I think we can do this with the people in our life. I have friends who have cancer or other illnesses that are going to cause their demise sooner rather than we would want. And I think that just the practice of being present and saying, gosh, you're here right now and I appreciate that. And um, help me when he was ready to go, or actually I knew his body was ready to go. Elvis would have stayed forever. Right. Um, I said, you know, dude, it's really time. It's time. Your body's failing and you're going to be in a lot of pain. And um, we had a little ceremony for him and um, the vet came to my house and um, somebody sang and it was really beautiful. And then I took him to the crematorium myself. Mm which was so important for me. And I actually, they let me put him in the oven. Oh. Um, yeah. You know what? I, I, it was intense. It was, it was really difficult, like to see, I mean, it was, I mean, he was white and I put him in there and he turned black immediately. Right. So, I mean, it was intense. It was really intense, but I also, felt so, I'm going to start to cry. I felt so proud of our relationship in that moment that I could help him. Like it was my job yeah. to help him move on to the next place. And so I felt really, there's not a word for how I felt in that moment, but it was very complete. And uh, I did it. I think I felt like I did a good job by him. And I was so euphoric for 24 hours afterwards. And then I got sad and depressed, but um, yeah. you know, it was um, because I feel like that the, one of the things is that we have to I think we need to make friends with death mm. and we need to there's a there's a kind of birthing process that happens in reverse during death. I saw it with my own mother when she was dying. She was laboring that her she was sweating and her breathing was deep and it was like she was exerting to try to get to the other side to try to get out of this life. And I feel like. I'm somebody who wants to embrace everything. I say in my book, the shit and the muck, right? I feel like we need to put our arms around. The, I mean, it's fall right now. Things are dying away. Let's celebrate that. I'm really excited. I mean, I've had a beautiful, glorious summer, and it has been an amazing fall in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Like the longest fall I can remember. Me too, yeah. Yeah. But I just, but I'm also really excited for winter, for like, you know, I just want it for about two and a half months, but um, oh, same to, to sit and do nothing, right? To sit and watch it snow. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so I feel like we need to, the death is a part of living and, and, and it's a part of the cycle. And I feel like we don't do enough in our culture to embrace it and to celebrate it and to, you know, kind of, I feel like we think death is something to move away from instead of I don't know. I feel like we, I just feel like we need to have a different way to approach death. Um, I'm just, I guess I say this as I'm looking at Elvis's ashes sit on my desk, my writing desk. And I bought this ridiculous wine jug in Taos. It's like, it's like a footed wine jug with a bulbous vase and it's like black on the bottom and it has a middle ring that's yellow and the top is turquoise and it's painted in all these different colors. And I put his ashes in that. Um, and it just it just makes me smile because that's kind of like how he was, you know. So anyway, I just think 
we need to rethink our relationship with death because we're all going there. 100% agree. Have you done much research on the good death movement? I have not, as a matter of fact. Oh, I highly recommend it. So there is um, a group of people, a lot of them are morticians who have started this thing about like how to prepare and how to talk about it and how to know exactly what to expect and make your choices and all this stuff. And it's beautiful. And um, Caitlin uh, Moriarty, I think is her name. I have recommended her books before, but I'm spacing out right now. But yeah, she's amazing. It sounds a lot like, I mean, I mean, of course, anybody who's dealt with hospice knows how they really approach things and how they're, God, they're so amazing and compassionate and uh, really they're telling you, okay, this is what you should expect. This is what's happening. She's in this stage of dying. You know, of course, my mother went through the stages of dying about five different times over two years which was really, I mean, in the end, it was very hilarious. Um, uh, but, you know, I was at, here in Colorado calling my brothers, okay, mom's dying. And it, I mean, it was like I was crying wolf because they would get here and then she would not die. Perfect. And I think part yeah. of it is she didn't want people around. Mm. She wanted to do it on her own, which is how she did it in the end. I mean, I mean what I mean is that I sat with her all through a day and she just was still there. And I said, okay, mom, I'm going to go get some sleep. And she died about an hour after I left. So, and my grandmother did the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah, I was there. Oh. A lot of people want to just die on their own. And I think, I mean, I don't know, people theorize that they don't want to hurt their, you know, loved ones, or they just feel like it would be, they don't want the, to feel because of, you know, even though I'm sitting there saying, mom, you can go, mom, you can go, you know, sh there's still a tie between us. And maybe it's easier to do when that tie is not there. So, right. Yeah. So uh, let's backtrack. Let's sure. get to more of how you got to be who you are. <laughs> <laughs> what were you like as a little kid? <laughs> well, I was, um, very, I think I was full of a lot of wonder about the world when I was younger, but it got squelched pretty quickly because of this family that I was uh, grew up in. I, uh, I, I like I have a, 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 um, a passage in the book where I talk about how I used to lick the sidewalk because um, I like yeah. the taste of dirt um, uh, yeah. after the rain. I love, I just loved it and I love that smell. And so I was always kind of like, wow, the world is such a great place. Let me go explore. But because I was, uh, you know, a little girl, um, so I'm about your age, so a little girl, I was told to get dirty and not to do that and to stay inside and play with my dolls and, um, all, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think my, I got shut down at a pretty early age and I, but there, um, the Finns, I'm half Finnish, the Finns have this thing called Sisu, which is fortitude. Like I used to think it was the Italians in my family that made me so tough. And I've subsequently realized it's the Finns, man, those are some tough people. Um, and uh, I just had this determination that no matter how many times somebody just put me underneath their thumb, I was going to crawl back out and um, try to do it my way. So um, I didn't have a happy childhood. I was, um, uh, I was so the words that were coming to my mouth were, I was scared of a lot. So that must be the truth. I was scared a lot um, of, you know, the violence in my family. And uh, as I got into my, and I became a, I was put in a place of becoming an adult at a very early age. So I wasn't really a child for very long. And that's something I've tried to rediscover in my adult life. 
so like, for example, when I was in kindergarten, I used to, my parents both worked, my dad was in the military and my dad worked, sometimes worked two jobs and my mom worked in retail. And so my mom would be at work and my dad would work the graveyard shift because, you know, this is in the days before childcare and all that stuff. So my dad would come home and go to sleep and then I would wake him up. It was my job to wake him up before I went to kindergarten in the afternoon, it was a split shift. So I would wait, so I knew what time it was, I would wake him up and then I would walk a mile to school by myself, which no kid does now, right? No kid walks from their door to the mailbox now. I mean, really, I I walked to school too in Philadelphia. Right, so I, this was in California, so it was all, you know, it was only the Zodiac killer who was running around then. So anyway, so I don't really, you know, I just remember as a kid not liking the things, you know, like I was given dolls and I thought dolls were boring. And I often wonder who I would have been if I had someone had said, oh, what are you interested in, Karen? You know, but that's not the childhood I got. So I do remember that by the time I was a, you know, preteen, what do they call them now? And a teenager, I was very rebellious and I wanted to because everybody was terrified of my father who was in fact terrifying um and uh psychologically and physically abusive and a big guy i just wanted to be the person who said no i thought somebody has to say no and so that put me in the line of fire a lot when i was a teenager and then my parents got divorced when i was 16 and uh we were living in hawaii at the time where my dad was stationed and then we my mom and i and my little sister moved back to colorado which, were, which is where we had been living before. So we moved around a little bit, uh, you know, California. I was born in Nevada, then we moved to California. Then we moved to Colorado. Then we moved to Hawaii. That was our overseas tour. We could have gone to Belgium, but no, we went to Hawaii. And uh, and then I moved back to Colorado. And, I, you know, so this Colorado is my home. I, I went to college in Boulder and kind of, with the exception of about two and a half years when I was doing my PhD in Wisconsin, haven't left because, I mean, I just... I have such a connection to this landscape and to the mountains and to these skies. It's just, a you know, like it's home for me. So this is where my, everything about me sings when I'm in Colorado. So, so speaking of being in Boulder, so you're going to school at CU Boulder. And then how did you decide to live in that tiny little mountain town? And please tell everyone about it. So, um, I, my moving to the mountains was an accident for me. Back in the day when I first moved into the mountains, it was actually a less expensive place to live. That's not true now. Mm. And also you could have pets. I was a renter. I was a renter until just about three years ago. So when I could finally afford to buy a house. So it, as a renter, you could have a dog in the mountains. So, and I really wanted to get a dog. So I had finished my bachelor's and my took some time off and then went back for my master's and I think I was in the time of taking time off and I really really wanted a dog of my own and so I moved to the mountains I was kind of living in the apron of the foothills just outside of Boulder and then I found a rental in Gold Hill and that's where I got Elvis and it's and that was total serendipity because I was pining for a dog and pining for a dog and my landlord at the time didn't want me to have a dog and then I had a very difficult roommate um, who wanted me, she wanted me, she slept at odd hours and she wanted me to go out to, when I exited, to step out, go out the window instead of close the door. 
So I, so I, that's convenient, especially in the winter. I mean, come on. I would say that there was a, um, there was a confrontation in which the police were called. (laughs) And uh, I thought, oh my God, I need to get out of here. So I, I, you know, and the police officer said to me, you need to get, you need not to live here. This is ridiculous. And I said, like, I was like, but I was here first. He said, I don't care. Get out of here. So that I moved within a month and two weeks after I moved, I found Elvis at the Humane Society. So it was all like meant to be. Um, I went in looking for, you know, like a, 40 pound female and I got a 72 pound male <laughs> who was a runner and who never listened to me. So, so I moved to the, so that I moved to Gold Hill, which was a tiny mountain town. And then later, which I mentioned in the book, um, but I really was living where I had Elvis and where a lot of the book takes place is around this little mountain town, Jamestown. And I lived there for a little while in town with, with Elvis. And then, I mean, I've, it's hard to keep track of my moves. <laughs> I moved so many times, but I went to Wisconsin for graduate school. When I came back, then I moved in the li- to the little cabin, which is above Jamestown, four miles, 1,500 feet in elevation. And the first cabin, of course, within nine months burned to the ground, and I lost everything. And then I moved to another cabin uh, about a mile and a half away as the crow flies, on, still on top of that mountain. And I lived there for 10 years. And, well, I'll just tell you a little bit about my situation and then we'll go back to Jamestown. So we moved to the mountains by accident too. We had lived, my husband and I had lived in suburbs for like 15 years and we we're so sick of the suburbs and we wanted to live in town in Denver. You know, there's so many cute places that you can live and work and shop and recreate and all this stuff and have everything walkable and that's what we wanted we looked for that for months but um we had very limited finances and it it was just the beginning of the denver explosion and so we're like well screw it let's just go see what the mountains have to offer and we had never spent more than like a weekend trip in the mountains we we didn't know what life in the mountains was like because you know you can't know in just a weekend and um, so we're both from the coast originally. And uh, so sea level, and then now we live at 8,700 feet. And that was a big adjustment, but we had a Husky at the time. And when we brought him up to the mountains, you could just see him do this. <sighs> yeah. yeah, He was just the happiest, but it was so funny by, by two, three months in, he was like, you know what? Uh, it's still too warm here. Let's go to Alaska. <laughs> he he was just like never ever happy with the temperature, unless it was you know like a foot of snow. Then he was happy. Yeah, Elvis used to sit on the deck. I love this. It'd be you know, um, ten below, and he would sit on the steps and he would just like he was. I always said he was a poet. He would look up at the stars and watch the snow fall. You know, he loved it. I mean, there is nothing. Um, I also say this in my book, there's nothing in all the world as happy as a husky in snow. No, um, there's not. They are. And, you know, so, and Elvis was one of those huskies that was hot. If it was, you know, at, you know, over 60 degrees, he couldn't take it. Yep. Um, our dog now, my who's the same kind of husky shepherd mix, he's much better um, in tolerating it, but he still loves the snow, so. Well, you'll have to show me a picture, send me a picture of your Husky Shepherd mix, because that's what my Alexi was. A husky. And so we call him a Jiberian Shepsky. 
um, so, so we understand about moving and we understand about living in the mountains and, and all that, but you know, conifer is a freaking metropolis compared to Jamestown. So can you paint a picture for people of like just how remote we're talking and what it was like, maybe that first or two seasons. Cause you know, there's an expression here that I suppose is most of the mountain areas that uh, called three and in that if you survive three winters that you'll just stay in the mountains forever. Have you heard that? Yeah. We, uh, well, I've never heard that, but that is true. I mean, we always, I always laughed when I saw people moving to the mountains in the summertime mm-hmm. and they're like, wow, this is so great. And then the first winter would hit and they'd be gone by the spring um, because yeah. that's the thing. And of course, you know, when you live in a mountain town, nobody talks to you until right. you survive uh, at least a winter. Um, yep. But I, the place where I'm living now, we've been here for three years and we're still trying to break into the mountain community. I mean, mountain communities are tough and I don't, yeah. that's not uh, anything they should be proud of, but they're very um, uh, exclusive. I don't know. What's the word? They're very kind of like, they just don't want outsiders coming in. And um, where I, are you exactly? Huh? Where are you? What town? So right now I live outside of Rollinsville, Colorado. Um, So we are on an acre and a half of land off of the peak to peak highway. And um, we couldn't afford Jamestown when we could afford to buy a house because, you know, after Mm -hmm. the flood in 2014, Mm -hmm. which took about a third of the town with it, um, we did not, um, there was nothing, nothing available. So when I was living in Jamestown, I, I wasn't actually living in Jamestown. I lived above it, as I said. So past town, and it kind of like dispersed, these little dispersed enclaves. And the, there were about maybe uh, eight houses in the area where I lived. So it was really, I mean, it was very nice. I got used to the idea of space. I realized I'm somebody who needs a lot of space, and I, lot, I need a lot of solitude. And I, it really worked for me. Um, so... I still resist the idea that I was remote because um, I could get in my car and be down to Boulder in about 30, 30 minutes, 25, 20 maybe, on a, <laughs> I was going really fast on a summer day. Um, and so I could get down to Boulder and, um, you know, so it didn't feel that remote to me. Um, it was, you know, you definitely planned your days. You didn't go to town every day. In fact, yeah. like you plan your days in town. And right now I go to town about uh, three days a week. In the summertime, I go to town one day a week. And I'm used to staying put and it really, it just works for me. So anyway, Jamestown is a town of, of about 300 people, less than 300 people. In a, in a little, it used to be a mining town. And uh, so there, there's one stop sign. <laughs> there's a post office. And there is the Jamestown Mercantile Cafe. And, and then the rest of it is residential places. And then where I live was called Up Top. And uh, there are about another 300 people dispersed up there in various, there's a place called the Barquet Ranch and a couple other places, people living up there. And so, you know, in some ways it's a great little mountain town because it's an, you know, the 300 people is, it's a little easier to break into a town of 300 and have community than it is right presently. My, the closest town to me is 10 minutes away. It's Nederland, Colorado. Rollinsville is not really a town. I mean, there's like some stuff there, but there's not there's nothing really there. I mean, like it's a train stop basically, uh, and the train doesn't stop there. <laughs> so, right. Um, so Nederland is ten minutes away. I think Nederland is fifteen hundred people or up, but it's a tourist town. So oh my gosh. So in the summertime, 
you don't go down on the weekends because you can't get through town. Um, right. Or And in the wintertime, the ski traffic, same thing, because there's a ski place, uh, Eldora, that's right outside of Netherlands. So, so that's where I'm at now. Um, so Jamestown was, you know, I'm really honestly idyllic. I mean, very much a small mountain town in that something would happen at the Merck on Saturday night and everybody knew about it by Sunday morning. And so there was a lot of gossip, uh, as there are in mountain towns. But I found it a little easier to kind of break in and make some cause a ruckus, as I do, uh, by joining the arts organization and uh, kind of bringing some newer, some some of my ideas into the organization. Uh, and and I develop, I have and had a love hate relationship with them. You know, like I there was times when I loved that little town, and there are times when I thought, oh my god, you guys are driving me batty. But I think isn't that a relationship? Uh, isn't that the definition mm-hmm. of a relationship? But you know, right. I really learned about the value of community. I really learned what community meant when I lived there, which is that. You can hate people or whatever. Not I don't like this person. I don't like their politics. I don't like whatever. They drive me up the wall. But when that person is in trouble, everyone in town shows up to help them. And that, I thought, oh, my God, this is what community is. We all know that we're in this together. We're bound by this geographic region, and we help each other out. So, and we definitely, Jamestown, you know, survived a fire. It survived this huge thousand-year flood event. Um, there have been, you know, so there have been some upheavals. And, you know, when my own house burned down, the town had a benefit for me. And if it wasn't, hadn't been for that benefit, I, I wouldn't have been able to recover. I was a renter and I'm old enough that when I started renting, nobody had renter's insurance because, you know, like it was, you know, $10 or $20 a month that you didn't have. Right. And so I didn't have insurance. I lost everything. And had to like put my life back together at 40 and they raised three thousand dollars for me and that would not have happened it would not have happened had i been living in boulder or a place where i was right. more anonymous you know and that's like a hundred ish bucks per person that's a lot yeah it was it was really amazing and kind and the, and the, like the guy i was working at the merc at the time i you know like i said i'm a writer because so i have like 10 jobs usually mm-hmm. um <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, change that, but at least all my jobs are teaching or writing now. Then they used to be like delivering mail and cooking a sh- uh, short order in a cafe and catering and all kinds of stuff. So even my boss, who we had a kind of, uh, I don't know, we didn't have a very uh, loving relationship. He um, he set out a jar on the bar for me, and he just put my name on it, and people would just throw money in it. And I would go in every couple of days and grab the cash when I was trying to kind of like, I need, you know, I need, when you lose everything, it's astonishing to mm-hmm. start from zero. At first, it's unbelievably liberating. Like there's this weird moment of like, oh, I don't have to worry about stuff. Well, like you figured the worst has happened, right? right? Exactly. I, mean, you're, you're I, don't have to, yeah. I don't have to like pay my rent or I don't have to do this. I don't, and I don't have to, um, but then you realize I woke up and uh, the day after and it was cold uh, it was like march and the snow had come in and i didn't have any warm clothes and the you know by then the stores had started to put out their spring lines mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was mm-hmm. hard to find warm clothes and you know i'm an extra large so it was hard harder to find stuff in my size and so i put on i didn't even have a toothbrush that that so the next morning i was sleeping on my friend karen z's floor well, I, the first night was in a hotel room. The next night I was on Karen Z's floor and I woke up and I 
she said, oh, I got a bag of clothes for you. And I, I put on something that would fit. And it's, it had a perfumey smell. It smelled like somebody else. And, and I just started to cry like a little baby, um, you know, just like this whimper. Because there was nothing familiar. Yeah. And that is such an interesting, like we have, we don't realize how many little rituals we have every day of, of familiarity, like the coffee cup that you like to drink out of, or that your coffee made a certain way, or even your, you know, your bed, or the fuzzy thing that you like to put on on cold mornings, or, or having a toothbrush to brush your teeth with. I mean, so it was, um, wow, what a, it was a shock. Um, it was a shock. Yeah. And here, just that fire thing is just so ever present that I, mean, I know tons of people who have lost everything or, you know, definitely lost something and have figured out how to recover. But even when I was starting your book and listening to it, I was like, I don't know if I can do this because, oh, just to live through that with you was so traumatic. It really was awful. I was like, I almost felt like I was bringing it to my door. I was like, no, no, I might have to turn this off. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that, you know, like I was thinking about my friends, writer friends, and the way they responded when they found out that I my, I lost everything, including most of my writing. And uh, they were so traumatized by that. And the thing is, is that I was, was I traumatized? I don't know. I, I, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a loss. It was a grief. But the thing is, is it was different for me because I had to do, I had to move through it. And when things like that happen to you, you realize you have two choices. You can lie down and die or you can get on with it. And, you know, like, and I'm not saying get on with it and not um, grieve, but I'm saying that you have to find a way for it not to stop you dead in your tracks. And mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing. And so I think that the idea of thinking about it in some ways is worse. Imagining mm -hmm. what it's like is worse than actually having it happen to you. Because when it happens to you, this is, this is, that, this is my finished Sisu. When it happens to you, well, you take a deep breath and you do what you need to do so that you can put the, your next foot in front of you. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not bypassing grieving or any of that kind of stuff about loss, but I'm saying don't let it freeze you. And that's what I realized. Um, there was a moment when I thought, I, I remember the moment I can, I should, I'm going to stop. There's no, why should I rebuild my life? You know, what for? And of course, the answer for me was that dog. And so then I recognized the first, I recognized for the first time depression in my life. And um, when I probably had been depressed for a very long time and I, you know, went and saw somebody and got some help for it. But I, and I don't know, maybe it's just me that I'm really practical. And, and when it comes to that kind of stuff, I feel like, but there, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but there's something that happens so that the worrying about it isn't going to help us. We right. have to live, because what that does is it keeps us from being fully present in our lives. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And so it's not about being prepared for it. It's about being able to surf. <laughs> um, it's being able to ride the wave in a yeah. way that is the most graceful and eloquent for your life, Is that has the most meaning for you. And I'm talking about, you know, when you get the bad phone call that you're terminally ill or when somebody that you love is terminally ill or when fire takes your house or when whatever, or, or 
like we just have to read the headline and realize the you know we're in a climate collapse and um i find myself turning away from the worry and just staying with what is here right now and that's when i go back to that thing that i did with elvis which is this is a good day look how beautiful it is i have this if i have this moment this moment is enough and so to stop the kind of oh my god this could happen because if you think about those things you're going to sleepwalk through your life, right? You're not going to ever, you know, first of all, you're going to get really scared. And second of all, you're never going to see what's right there, right in front of you, trying to say, hey, look at me. This is amazing. You're so right. And that's so well said. And your book is so well written. That's, it, it was amazing. I think my only problem with the book is that all of your fancy recipes I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted them intersp- interspersed with what was going on. I used to have a food blog, actually, and oh. um, yeah, I did. It was called One Hot Kitchen, and uh, it was I started with my sister. It was two sisters, two opinions, one hot kitchen, and then uh, oh, so I we like talked. About, we had food stuff, and both of us are deeply interested in food. and And she's actually subsequently now she her her Instagram food is really interesting and good, and she's into wine and stuff like that. Um, and then for a while before I wrote Rough Beauty, they wanted me. I had a, a publisher interested in you know my tough amazing mountain life living by myself at 8500 feet which i don't know why that's such a miracle but apparently has something to do with the fact that i'm a, i was a woman and they wanted me to write about that and then have a, a, a recipe at the end of every chapter and they were going to serialize it on amazon huh. so i put a few chapters together for them and then they realized they came back to me after about two months and said oh you're not our demographic we're going for people who are younger than you <laughs> what <laughs> I wasn't their 20 or 30 something hipster audience. So anyway, but so Rough Beauty was a book that I kind of tried to write in several different ways. At first it was going to be, you know, seasonal essays, and then it was going to be uh, this food thing. And then it was going to be a memoir about my dog. It was going to be called Loving Elvis. And it was funny, Elvis was really difficult to write about because he was so larger than life. And I was hard for me to get him right on the page and um when i finally so the way this book came about which is kind of talk about serendipity so um in 2015 my mother was really dying and uh before she died i we had a tough relationship i she i she was hard on me she expected a lot from me and she was very she wasn't very forthcoming about saying that she loved me Mm. and she favored the boys in the family um, over the girls and uh, and I but I ended up being her primary caretaker in the last years of her life and it was a role that I grew to resent immensely even even while I gave myself to it like I felt like I had the a duty to my mother to help her Uh, I wouldn't want to know that my mother had been abandoned so somewhere near a few like two months before she died I thought, why am I, you know, she'd say, oh, my God, you're my angel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I would resist that. I thought, you know what, lady, you had your chance and it's past time. And uh, I'm not taking that in. And I thought, (laughs) wait a minute. Here it is. (laughs) Your mom is saying the thing that you want her to say. And I thought, 
All right, I'm going to just accept that. I'm going to accept that and I'm going to accept our relationship for what it is. And I'm going to accept my mom for who she is. And that was so big. Um, so before she died, I said, Mom, my mom, an atheist, I said, Mom, could, when you get to the other side, could, and I would twirl my finger at her, because she used to do this little twirling thing. And I'd say, I'd say, could you, when you get to the other side, could you work a little magic for me? And she'd, she'd be in her bed and she'd twirl her finger at me and she'd say, okay. <laughs> so she died in January of 2015. And in April of 2015, I sent yet another essay to Modern Love, the New York Times column. I was try I've been trying to get into it for, you know, more than a decade since I started and have gotten so many nice rejections from them that they encourage me to keep sending, you know, and every time they'd say no. So uh, they rejected me again, you know, like the 12th time. So I got so mad. I turned around and sent the essay, which is called The Fox Who Came to Dinner, to another New York Times place called, uh, called uh, The Opinionator. And it was a column called Menagerie that they had for a brief period of time about our life with animals. And like less than a week later, they called me and said, we want to print it. Here are our edits. I said, great. And it got printed, the, which was the first week of May, got printed. And I had 10,000 hits on my website. <laughs> yeah. And then the day after that, an agent called me and said, do you have representation? Like, and I just started crying because this is the thing that doesn't happen in, when you're a writer. And so the sh short of the long is that, yes, it was the right agent. And we sold Rough Beauty for more money than I've made, you know, in a decade to Scribner uh, as a proposal. And the, and the thing that they said to me is, listen, Karen, this is a memoir. It's not seasonal essays. And in a memoir, Karen is a character who changes over time, which is one of the most important things they could have ever said to me. And so that's where that kind of writing, like it reads like a novel, right? So this kind of idea of who was I at the beginning and who was I at the end of the book. And that's how Rough Beauty came about. I don't even remember why I started telling you the story, but there it is. <laughs> well, I appreciate the book exactly how it is. I was, I was kind of kidding about the recipes, but I, I do try to kind of cook a fancy way. So that's why I said that. I honestly probably would have never had picked it up if it, if I knew it was a story about like, you know, when you were first thinking it would be a story about your dog, because I know those books are going to make me cry and I <laughs> run away from them. <laughs> and the fact that it turned out to not just be about living in the mountains, but it turned out to be about community and about your dog and about love and about your mom and about relationship and all the friends and the food and Colorado. I was like, Oh, this is the whole package that I appreciated. I needed it hit me right. It wasn't too much of one thing. It was a life, you know, and it was beautiful and it made me cry, but it didn't make me cry too much. I didn't walk in going, all right, here we go. I know I'm going to cry and I have my walls up and I'm afraid and, <laughs> and that kind of a thing. I, yeah, I still can't. I mean, Elvis, that was actually how I finally got Elvis on the pages because I realized he had to be a character and yeah. So he had to have character development too, just like everybody else, you know, like the, you know, the other characters are, you know, my friend Karen Z and then of course, of course, Judith. So, um, and that's how I finally got him on the page. And I'll just tell you, I, I still can't really read the Elvis chapter. I can't read it out loud. 
not crying. Wow. So. Why would you do that to yourself? I mean, especially <laughs> if you're at a reading, come on, you don't want to stand there and blubber in front of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like that is not my job as a writer is to cry in front of my audience. So, um, right. but I just, you know, I mean, but I, I mean, it's, it's, they're not tears of sadness. It's their tears of fullness. Honestly, yes. it was such a full experience with him and a full life. And I, you know, as hard as it was to let him go and for, and that for how many, like it was a year up to a year or more after when so, I would see somebody and they would ask about Elvis and I would have to tell them that he had died. Um, I would still tear up telling them, mm. but I just, it was, um, you know, it was just partly because it was such a, it was, there's just so much emotion attached to that, that animal. And there's, it just has to, sometimes it just comes out. Yeah. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I do a day of the dead thing every year. And I put pictures of all my dead on an altar and um, I put him up there. And sometimes I, you know, he makes me cry a little bit, but um, he was a really important part of my life. Right. And it shows. And I mean, you're better for his presence in your life. I'm sure, you know, we don't have an altar, uh, although I do love the day of the dead, but I have a whole wall of just all past pets and I, I'll send you a picture <laughs> and you're like, all right, I'm not the only crazy person. So it's almost time to go. So I have a whole bunch more questions. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, as I said, I believe that books come into people's lives at a particular time. And like you said, that it, how the publishing happened what did it mean in your life at that time that it happened then it really uh, it changed my life actually it changed my life um it changed my sense of who i was as a writer because i have been writing you know really since my late 20s and uh so i had been writing by then by for more than 20 years and oh wait is that right i'm doing the math and just kind of being published in small literary magazines and to have a major publisher say, we believe in this book and we believe in you uh, was a big deal for me. And of course, I mean, I can't, I need to say that it, it allowed me to buy a house. I would never, ever have been able to buy a house. I mean, I have always, I've been, you know, I'm really stubborn and I have stubbornly stuck with the idea that I'm a writer, which means I have always taken like four jobs to keep, give me a little bit of writing time I didn't want to get lost in a nine to five job somewhere where I would be exhausted and not able to write. Or um, So I've always taken teaching jobs. And at first I was, you know, teaching at the community college level, which was, you know, doesn't pay very well. And now I'm a non-rostered faculty at a university. And I also teach for some other writing programs. And the money is not spectacular, but it's not as bad as it was. And But the getting a book contract was validation and then it was also money so i had an infusion of cash and i could actually buy a house and so my partner and i bought this house outside of rollinsville on an acre and a half of land and for the first time in my life i have a place where if i want to paint the walls red i can paint the walls red and you know i think i don't take that for granted that was, that's a huge thing for me and and so you know i love having my own home and i love this house it's it, and it, this also came up We've been, you know, in a serendipitous kind of way, we've been looking for houses for like eight months and, you know, the housing market in Colorado. And this was a few years back when it wasn't nearly as an insane as it is now. We couldn't afford our house now, actually, probably. Oh, right. right. Mm -hmm. And Greg said, here's a house in Blackhawk. And I said, I don't want to move to Blackhawk, which is, you know, actually another, no. you know, I have a Blackhawk zip code, but my Blackhawk is another 15 miles down the road. 
it, and it's really far from Boulder. I mean, it, it, in terms of community. And uh, but we looked at it. We looked at it where it was on the map, and we said, "Let's take a look at it because it looks really nice." And it had come on the market on Friday. We saw it on Monday, and we put an offer on it. And Tuesday, we it was accepted, and it was just this total. It was meant to be. It had everything that we needed. And uh, so anyway, so if you pay attention, the world wants to help you. So. Okay. Well, this one may be harder, but besides Terry Tempest Williams, what other books or authors have come to you to help you through times like, you know, the fire or your mom or Elvis or, you know, just any time in your life that you're like, wow, that book, I really needed that book right now. <laughs> hmm. You know, when I, I actually the first book that comes to mind, this is but this is not this is previous to this time. When I was a when I was a teenager and living in a pretty in a war zone, I read The World According to Garp three times. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, John Irving's kind of mixture of tragedy and comedy really helped me. I read right now I read a lot of memoirs, so because I was working in memoirs, so I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, what, what I can't think of the last book that I thought, oh my God, that meant so much to me other than spiritual books, which are, you know, like Pema Chodron and Krishna Das and Ram Das. And I'm, of course, a meditator. So these things help me. But I will tell you that the book that got me where I am today, that made me want to be a mountain woman, made me want to realize that I could be independent and have my own life was uh, Anne LaBastille's Woods Woman. I know that I've book? never heard of this. No. So in the seventies, Anne La Bastille, like in the Adirondacks, she built her she built her own log cabin by wow. floating the logs across a lake, and then she built some kind of joint hauling system. I don't even know what they're called. And she built the cabin herself. And I thought, oh my god. So you know, like maybe because you're close up to me, and my, we didn't have like role models, right? I no. didn't have role models. Like, and I wasn't, my family wasn't showing me strong female role models. And so when I read that book in my 20s, I thought, oh my God, that is what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I want, I want that kind of autonomy and agency because that's an expression of who I feel like my own strength, who I am. And um, so that was a hugely influential book to me. And um, I was thinking about her a lot when I was writing my own memoir. Well, that's amazing. I've never heard of it. And I am blown away that she could do that. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. So besides uh, writing articles for, you know, literary publications, what else are you working on now that we can look forward to? I'm actually, I'm in the just last bit of polishing off a collection of short stories. um, And it's about outliers in the West, Uh little mountain towns, like like Jamestown. And it's right now... Uh, it's called How to Live in a Horse Barn in Winter, but it's that's not going to be the final title. I don't okay. know what the final title is going to be. <laughs> okay. It, um, but it's so I'm and I'm hoping that will get sold in the late winter, early spring. So so I'm finishing that up, and then I don't know what the next project is. It might be that I, you know I take up the Nina story, and maybe it is going to be a novel. And of course, I'm going to continue to write short stories about. Uh, mountain living and also about landscape and place and uh so i'm i'm i got i got a lot of stuff yeah. a lot of stories to write so. well i look forward to all of them and to you know in-person events again and you know i'll follow you i'll go to boulder bookstore or tatter cover or whatever and come see you 
Actually, I'll be at the Boulder Bookstore in December um, oh. with with Kat Wilder. Do you know her? She's did, she wrote a book called Desert Crown, which is a memoir about her life. And then she is a horse person oh. and a ranch owner in southwestern Colorado. And uh, so she's promoting her book and we're going to do a conversation because we have so many intersections in our Rough Beauty uh, intersects a lot with Desert Chrome. And uh, so we'll be there December 6th, 7th, or 8th, one of those days. Okay. I'll put it on the calendar. Yeah, it'd be good to meet you too. And hopefully, you know, this will help you get more book sales. All of the books we talked about will be on the uh, show notes. And I thank you so much for your time and for, Thanks, and for your life. So nice to talk to you. It was so nice to talk to you too. Oh my gosh, Revelers, wasn't that great? When I said, just enjoy this conversation about life, I was not exaggerating, was I? You know, her ability to put fine little points on how to just look at life, how to try to get through life, how to deal with death, oh, just are amazing to me. And tears of fullness. Ah, what a concept. I almost called the episode tears of fullness, but I really felt that whole live your life the way that the dog would and how a dog teaches you to live was even, even that much more poignant. I hope you do too. So I really hope that it touched you and we obviously talked about a lot of serious things and the holidays are coming. It's almost Thanksgiving and it's very common this time of year to need a therapist, a trained counselor to talk to. There's nothing like the holidays and your family and whatnot to bring up stuff. And there's a good possibility that something in this episode brought up some stuff for you. So, of course, look into my sponsor, BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com. The link is, of course, on the Revel Revel website. And if you go to them and you use the code Revel Revel, you get 10% off your first month. Ah, the holidays. As Taylor Swift says, tis the damn season. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, next up will be another Mount Carmel person. But guess what? It's a youngster. It's someone under 35 coming up. So please look forward to that in the next couple of weeks. And I do have time for one to two more interviews, if you or someone you know wants to talk about their life stories and revel in their serendipitous happy accident, send them my way. Please keep sharing this podcast with everyone you know and care about. And uh, finally, if you are in the Denver Boulder area, please come out and see Karen at the Boulder Bookstore is on her website now to get more information. You can also go to the Boulder Bookstore's website if you're interested. And if you're not in the Denver Boulder area, of course, you can get 
her book and all of the books that we talked about and all the books we've ever talked about on Rebel Rebel on bookshop.org. You'll find that on the website as well with direct links. If you buy the book through my direct link, I also get a little bit of money. And I thank you for being a reveler. Mm -hmm.